I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on the menu this week, soggy sales in the cereal world, the ups and downs of utopianism and India's penchant for hard liquor. But first, out of ammo was our cover line this week. With world stock markets deep in bear territory, an air of panic and doom is slowly seeping into the financial system. Yet whereas in the past central bankers' weapons have kept recession away, this time they've all but run down their arsenal. One fear above all stalks the markets, that the rich world's weapon against economic weakness no longer works. Ever since the crisis of 2007 to 2008, the task of stimulating demand has fallen to central bankers. But the power to ensure stability may be slipping from their grasp. Despite central banks' efforts, recoveries are still weak and inflation is low. Faith in monetary policy is wavering. As often as they inspire confidence, central bankers sow fear. And that fear has been sprouting early this year. Negative interest rates in Europe and Japan make investors worry about bank earnings, sending share prices lower. Quantitative easing, or QE, the printing of money to buy bonds, has led to a build-up of emerging market debt that is now threatening to unwind. Even so, our cover story remains sanguine. Plenty of policies are left, and all can pack a punch. The bad news is that central banks will need help from governments. Until now... Central bankers have had to do the heavy lifting because politicians have been shamefully reluctant to share the burden. Politicians can make a difference, we argued, but only if they're not too busy bickering to act. Behind the worry that central banks can no longer exert control is an even deeper fear. It is that liberal, centrist politicians are not up to the job. Our America's section, meanwhile, took a look at one politician who certainly thinks that he's the right man for the job. Evo Morales is Bolivia's longest ruling president and rightly proud of his achievement. But, as our article explained, he's rather reluctant to hand over the baton. Evo Morales, an avid footballer in his spare time, enjoys scoring goals and breaking records. And he's recently bagged himself another couple of trophies. In January, Mr Morales, the country's first president of indigenous origin, marked ten years in power, with a speech nearly six hours long, extolling his own achievements. But will Bolivia's electorate allow him to make such a lengthy speech yet again? On February 21st, Bolivians are to vote in a referendum on whether to allow Mr Morales to run for re-election in 2019. If they vote yes, and then elect him to a fourth term in office, he will serve until 2025, by which time most Bolivians would remember no other president. 
From the intoxicating heights of political power, we move to the inebriating influence of alcoholic goods. As an article in our Asia section explained, India's government is trying to find the right way to deal with an addiction to booze. In a bow to Gandhian austerity, India's constitution lays down the aim of reducing alcohol consumption. Yet not everyone takes the hair-shirted constitution word for word. Most Indians do not drink at all, and per person, Indians are far more abstemious than others elsewhere. Yet those who do drink show a preference for the strong stuff. And there's a heavy-duty tax regime to match. It is not just that the federal government imposes a tariff of 150% on imported spirits. Local licensing fees and taxes, along with a range of gouging state controls on the alcohol trade, stick consumers with end prices that are often five or six times those at the distillery gate. There's always a cheaper alternative, though. In Delhi, a plastic 0.6-litre bottle of brown liquid whose wonky label proclaims Star Deluxe 80 Proof retails for just 140 rupees, or $2. Unlicensed hooch, widely available in India, costs a fraction of that. Sadly, it sometimes also kills or blinds. Better keep the lid on that, then. Away from hard liquor, we flip to our business section, where milk is the only tipple. We feature the cereal industry, and looking inside, it seems some brands may be getting a little stale. In recent years, breakfast cereals seem to have lost their snap, crackle and pop. Many contain things that anxious consumers shun, from carbohydrates and gluten to artificial flavours and genetically modified or GM grain. Might the world be losing its sweet tooth for the cereals of old, then? The market for ready-to-eat cereals shrank by 9% in America between 2012 and 2015, according to Euromonitor, a data firm. But rather than crying over spilt milk, manufacturers are puffing up their estimates. On February 16th, General Mills told investors that its American cereal sales were stabilising. Kellogg is equally chipper, reporting on February 17th that it expects its American cereal sales to grow this year. But it will be hard going to revive these stalling sales, we argued, and many firms are beginning to diversify what they offer. Post Holdings, which sells honey bunches of oats and grape nuts, now also sells eggs and protein shakes. And cereal hardship turns out to be the mother of invention. A new cashy cereal features popped sorghum, crispy yellow peas and smashed red beans. Pet hamsters will love it. Well, good luck to them. An article in our finance section this week highlighted another industry looking a little flaky. For many, reaching a hedge fund is the pinnacle of a financial career, but might the market itself be reaching its peak? In 1990, hedge funds were still rare birds, 500-odd funds managed around $40 billion, mostly for rich individuals. Few people understood what they did or bothered to find out. Yet in the decades that followed, the hedges quickly grew in shape and size. 
By the end of 2015, the sector had mushroomed to include nearly 9,000 funds managing roughly $3 trillion. After a recent wave of closures, though, is the market trimming back? In 2016, for the first time since the worst of the financial crisis, there may be more closures than launches. And the main reason for fund success is the same for their demise. It's a performance industry. If you don't perform, people take their money and leave, says Anthony Lawler of GAM, an asset manager. But generational change has a hand in it too. Because the hedge fund boom happened in such a short space of time, lots of today's biggest managers come from the same generation. Many are tired and fed up, and with their millions made, they have little need to carry on. Better to retire and enjoy the pleasures of life, like gazing at works of fine art. Look at them long enough and you may find all sorts of secrets lurking between the brush strokes. That said, a bit of technological help will speed things up. And as an article in our science section reported, a new technique sheds light on paintings from the past. Paint peels. Wood and canvas backings rot. Frescoes crumble and fall. Few painted portraits survive from the classical period, but arid desert conditions have preserved one set, the funerary mummy pictures of the 2nd century AD from Tebtunis in Egypt. And as announced at a recent summit, scientists can now map each picture's contours by illuminating it sequentially from many directions, building a relief map from the resulting patterns of light and shade. Such a meticulous method can uncover exquisite detail, such as that the artist used squirrel tail bristles. On top of this, spectroscopy suggests that in two of the portraits, one mixture of pigments used came from the same batch. And what's more, the study illuminated a little about the man behind the masterpieces. The painter was also a shrewd businessman. He mixed indigo and madder to replicate the effect of the period's most expensive pigment, Tyrian purple, which was extracted from sea snails and worth more than its weight in gold. From the ancient world to political arguments today, some consider the idea of a utopian society worth investing in, while for others it's idealism at its worst. And marking the 400th anniversary of the publication of Utopia by Thomas More, a review in our Books and Arts section digs into the ups and downs of utopian dreams. Utopianism in politics gets a bad press. The case against the grand-scale, state-directed kind is well-known and overwhelming. Utopia, the perfect society, is unattainable, for there is no such thing. Nonetheless, Chris Jennings has broached the subject in his new book, Paradise Now, the story of American utopianism. It suggests... Not all modern utopians aim to seize the state in order to cudgel the rest of the world back to paradise. Plenty of gentler ones want no more than to withdraw from the mainstream and create their own micro-paradise with a few like-minded idealists. Which is precisely what Moore was suggesting all those centuries ago. But many small experiments that swept America in the early 19th and again in the late 20th century finally faltered. Most failed or fell short. None lasted. All were laughed at. Yet in this intelligent, sympathetic history, Chris Jennings makes a good case for remembering them well. For one 18th-century utopian Charles Fourier, fun was at the heart of utopia, and some admirable policies too. No society could improve, Fourier believed, until women's lot improved. 
The best countries, he wrote, have always been those which allowed women the most freedom. Well, I'll raise a utopian glass to that. I'm Anne McElvoy, that was our tasting menu, and if you're hungry for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.